it's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. Sometimes we make decisions with our kids on how we think our kids are going to feel in the first 10 minutes versus thinking about 10 months or 10 years. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience that person. Yeah. Here are your hosts. David and Danita Bailey. Well, good afternoon and welcome to School Days, help for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I'm Danita Bailey. And I'm David Bailey. A report by the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools called Voting with Their Feet, a state-level analysis of public charter school and district public school enrollment trends, found charter school enrollment during the 2020-2021 school year increased across the country as district public school enrollment decreased. During this period, charter school enrollment grew 7%, the largest increase in half a decade. The closure of schools and the deficiencies of virtual learning caused some parents to weigh their options to see if alternative academic solutions would better fit their families and address their children's years needs. <laughs> so in our family, we've, we've actually explored a lot of different options, a couple different options um, for our kids. We did charter school, regular school districts and now Chrissy's in fine arts school and not really due to COVID just because we were just kind of open to different options. And I absolutely understand why parents are questioning their current options because I was very dissatisfied with virtual learning. It was very, very tough for us. And even, you know, although I've never wanted to homeschool before, I really did envy my friends that were homeschooling because they weren't panicking like we were because they were already they already had their flow they already were going Um, but so as a teacher what are some of the negative aspects that you felt or the the consequences of virtual learning that now that you're back in school and you've been there for a while you've noticed that it's impacted the kids I think one of the biggest things is primarily is that you know a lot of the kids didn't have any accountability at home um, so many parents still had to work, but kids were at home. And so the kids were struggling with just, man, and I was as honest with my kids this year. I said, okay, look, y'all, tell me how it was for you last year. And they said, Mr. Bailey, we were doing nothing last year. <laughs> they said, we were at home. We were Netflix. And I had kids who were cooking, you know, right while I'm trying to teach. Our child was doing that. Yeah, yeah. He was making breakfast, and, you know, cooking eggs. All and, up in the camera. Right. And eating. And, you know, some kids, their screens were always off. Um, some kids were taking naps, some kids were watching movies, so just so they wouldn't get in trouble for not being there, they would, you know, log in, but they weren't really there. Um, and so I had one kid one time, I, th- I think I said this on another episode one time, but one time a kid was, I'm teaching, and the kid just literally bust out a bottle of tequila. <laughs> middle, I teach middle school guys, so I'm looking, I'm like, are you drinking? He looked, he didn't. I don't know if he didn't know if I saw him or what, but he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and poured his little shot, hit the shot, <laughs> and then went right, went right back to learning. Oh gosh. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so now that the kids are back, you know, I know exactly where they are. I know exactly what they're doing. I can hold them accountable um, and make sure that they're actually getting my work done. Because a lot of kids, they just weren't doing it. And there's nothing I could do necessarily to get them to get the work done. And so, you know... I think the other aspect is the social aspect of it as well. Many kids just 
developmentally kind of stopped. It was once March 2020 hit. You know, the last time many of my kids were in school were they were in sixth grade. Now they're eighth graders. My seventh graders were fifth graders. And now they're coming back to a social environment. And so a lot of kids just developmentally, because they didn't develop those social skills that you would typically develop during these years, they are, you know, they're getting better now. But at the beginning of the year, they were like a bunch of glorified, you know, fifth and sixth graders in seventh and eighth grade bodies. Mm-hmm. So it's just those developmental skills were missing as well. And so there's a lot of immaturity there that, you know, I had not seen not quite like that in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you can imagine, a lot of parents are going, okay this isn't working or it you know my kids have experienced these covid deficits academically and so now what are we going to do to kind of right this ship and does that mean we need to put them in private school or do i need to bring them home and homeschool them or whatever yeah you know the the academics um was really really lacking you know because many times i expect my kids to be on level when they come into my class and they're not um, last year was virtually a bust, and so with that, virtually, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but with it, it was really difficult, you know, for me to I have to constantly review old content instead of teaching just what I have to teach for this year. I have to go back to seventh grade math, sixth grade math, fifth grade math to get them the prerequisite skills that they need in order to learn the math that I'm teaching them right now. And so, for teachers, it's a juggling act. We have to teach what we still have to teach for this year knowing that most of our kids are not academically ready mm-hmm. and we never we were never really giving a, a clear-cut plan as to how to get them back on grade level just keep mm-hmm. on teaching as if they came into this year ready to go and so that that's the challenge of education right now yeah there are a lot of challenges in education right now mm-hmm. and we're going to talk mm-hmm. about some of the some of those things today we're talking to andrew campanella who is the president of national school choice week which incidentally starts on monday and uh they their their organization conducted a survey of parents and uh, we're going to find out just why some of these parents are choosing to make different changes in their um their kids academic lives but before we go any further let me just say it does take a village if you hear a great parenting tip or nugget of advice share it with your parent friends facebook it instagram it tweet it link it in and add the hashtag school days show and hashtag i am school days so uh without further ado let's uh, bring uh andrew campanella and thank you so much for joining us Thank you very much for having me, Danita and David. It is great to be back and happy School Choice Week. Yes, we did an episode, I think in our first season, where you talked all about the different options of school choice between, you know, charter schools and public schools and all those different things, the pros and cons of each, and um, just helped give a lot of guidance to parents as they're trying to make those choices. So I would recommend that anybody go back and, and listen to that episode. But you know, tell us, first of all, what is National School Choice Week? So National School Choice Week is a not-for-profit effort, and our goal is to raise awareness of all of the options that families have for their children's education. Those options include traditional public schools, public charter schools, public magnet schools, private and faith-based schools, online public schools, and homeschooling. And the way we raise that awareness is all throughout the year, our team of talented professionals researches, develops, and promotes the nation's largest portfolio of jargon-free and cost-free school search resources. And they're all available at our website, schoolchoiceweek.com. 
And we work with 26,000 schools and homeschool groups to raise awareness in individual communities across the country of the options that families have. And we focus all of those efforts on one week in January, because now is the time when families who wanna make a change for the next school year need to start looking at all of their different options. So right now, today, there were 10 large scale school fairs all across the country. There will be tens of thousands of events in person and virtual and activities all across the United States this week designed again to raise awareness of all the options families have and the benefits of utilizing those options. So this is basically, this is your Super Bowl week. <laughs> it is, absolutely. It is our Super Bowl week wrapped in with the Academy Awards and uh, New Year's Eve all at the same there time. There you go. <laughs> so you think, so you're recommending that people start now for yes. changes that they might make in the fall? Is that what it is? Yeah, so for example, if you are thinking that you might want to find a different school for your child and it's not an emergency situation, meaning you're not needing to change right now because of a bullying situation or because uh, something happened in school that has prompted the need for an immediate move, but maybe you wanna find a school that is a better fit, or if your child is just entering elementary, middle or high school and you have to make a choice or wanna make a choice, or if you've moved to a different community, now is the time to start looking around at schools uh, that would start in the academic year 2022-2023. A lot of families start in the spring or the summer and they think, well, we'll just be able to enroll in the spring or the summer. There are more school choice options for families today than there ever have been. And as a result of having all of those options and that expanded portfolio of options, the enrollment deadlines for a lot of schools have been made earlier. So you have to start the process sooner. So starting in January gives you enough time to really go through that process of looking at the options that are out there, asking a lot of questions, going to school fairs and on school tours and sitting down as a family and making a good decision. Sure. So your organization conducted a survey. Can you tell us who was surveyed? Uh, how was the survey conducted? All that good stuff. Sure. So we want to know every year from parents what they're thinking about education and schools and the process of evaluating whether or not their child is learning and getting an education that they, as the mom or dad, think they should. So we use the SurveyMonkey National Audience, which is a survey, a census-weighted survey uh, of thousands and thousands of U.S. families. And we ask questions that usually are not asked in different public opinion polls. So this year we asked moms and dads of school-aged kids between the ages of five and 18 years old, if they had within the past 12 months considered finding a new or different school for any of the kids in their household or if they are considering it now. And we also asked families if they did go through that process, what did they prioritize? Why did they want to choose a new or different school? What advice they would have for other families and things like that. And the results, I think we'll get into them here, are really interesting. And I think they go to the broader point that school choice is not a concept anymore. It is not a proposal. It is not an idea that uh, people can't 
interact with tangibly, it's a reality for the majority of families in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned they told you why. So what were some of the some of the reasons why they decided to make a change or consider making a change? Right. So the, the biggest top line of this survey, the biggest number that here is that 47 percent of families said that in the last 12 months, they considered finding a new or different school for their kids. And of the 49 percent who um, uh, who did not go through the process of looking for a new or different school for their child, 18% um, of those families said that um, that they would start the process in advance of the 2022-2023 school year. So what I found interesting was that the majority of parents or the highest percentage of parents said that the reason that they were looking for a new or different environment was because they wanted a higher quality education for their kids. That was the first answer. The second answer is they were motivated to look for something else because of the disruptions to their kids' education as a result of COVID. And the third uh, most prevalent response was they were concerned about school safety or bullying, and that motivated them to look around. By school safety, is that meaning you know shootings and fighting, or are we talking about safety because of the COVID um, pandemic? It is a really good question. And I think that parents have different interpretations of what the term school safety means. And so if you are in a community where there are greater incidents of uh, significant violence, your definition of safety might literally be shootings, stabbings, uh, situations where uh, the police are called uh, for situations with guns in schools, terrible. Uh, situations like that. For other families, it might be situations related to bullying and their kids uh, feeling unsafe in school because of bullies, which is serious for, for a lot of kids out there. And then for many other families, safety and health are linked together. And families are concerned about whether their kids will be healthy in school and safe from COVID and whether or not a school is taking appropriate precautions when it comes to mitigating uh, the coronavirus. So I think it really depends on how an individual parent looks at that term safety, interprets it and applies it to an education setting. Yeah, I know I'm on a couple of Facebook groups with different groups of moms and, and dads. And um, they're definitely when we were considering going back to school, because a lot of us, you know, we did virtual learning um, as long as we could. <laughs> and then um, the school districts decided to go back in the fall and some of them started off with virtual or gave you an option for 60 days of virtual. And I know there was just a lot of chatter about whether or not um, they were going to allow their kids to go back to school because some schools in, and you're in Florida. So you're probably very similar to the way we are in Texas. Um, just very um, liberal about wearing masks, not conservative. Um, so it's definitely like that in our community. But I know up, up north in the, a lot of places, they're very serious about wearing masks. So that that could definitely be a lot of the, the issue there. It is so interesting to see the geographic differences uh, when it comes to mask wearing and uh, adherence to mitigation protocols and everything like that. And, you know, people think if they just listen to the national news or look at Twitter, that parents are all in alignment on these right. things. The reality is that is not true. And when we talk about public opinion, we have to remember that 
when you have a number like 50%, it's a big number, but there's another 50%. Yeah. And, you know, there, there, are, there is a huge diversity of viewpoints out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the, the things that you mentioned is that they wanted more control over curriculum. So do you think that that's because of virtual learning and parents becoming more intimately involved with the curriculum? I mean, I know I became a seventh grader last year, <laughs> having to sit with my son and just keep him focused and whatnot. And this was my first time my eyes were really open to what he was really learning because you can't like tell when they're just bringing home homework. And so I wonder if some of those parents were like, oh, I don't like what they're learning. I feel like there needs to be more. Do you think there was some of that? I think that that is probably the vast majority of respondents to that question who were in that boat saying, okay, we're going through the virtual learning. Now we see the types of things our child is learning, how they're being taught um, and the specific curriculum. I don't necessarily think um, in a lot of cases that this response to this question was reflective of the broader national narrative of you know parents upset about things in school libraries and things like that. I think it was more uh, families saying that they were concerned about their kids not understanding a curriculum or not taking to uh, the way a subject is being taught. Mm -hmm. uh, the more practical components of curriculum and instruction that I think are more kitchen table discussions that families have uh, and are likely more motivators for families who hadn't otherwise thought about making a change. Yeah. Uh, do you think that parents uh, during virtual learning either were overwhelmed by the format and wanted something more manageable or once they finally saw what their kids were learning, they were underwhelmed with the curriculum that, that they were teaching? Um, I honestly think that it's a variety of answers, not to try to get out of giving you a direct answer, but I think that for a lot of families, they're involved in their kids' education, they look at their kids' homework, they don't necessarily see, in many cases, how things are taught, and then they compare it to how they were taught. Mm. And example, math. I have seen math lessons now that are very different from the way I learned math a million years ago. Um, and so... I don't know if the way I was taught or the way students now are taught was better, but I think a lot of parents say, this isn't how I was taught. And so yep. um, there must be a problem with it. You, you're a teacher. So I think you could probably weigh in on what you think the, uh, the reaction is. Yeah. I do think some families are underwhelmed or they think that something's not getting deep enough on a topic, et cetera. You know, and as, as a, you know, I, I teach math and so I teach uh, algebra and geometry uh, with middle school students, so these are advanced students, and um, you know, I'm I'm the type of teacher who I'm very all in on high tech and using technology in the classroom. Because I think there are many advantages to it, you know. Uh, but I am still kind of old school in nature as well, as I expect kids to do their work and show their work. And I tell my kids that math is a subject you have to do. You can't just look at it and click click letters, and you know. Um, but I, you know, I've seen that many. Um, kids i haven't had a lot of input from parents necessarily but just the kids are not used to working necessarily and so that's one of the biggest challenges as well is making sure that the kids are doing what they're supposed to do and making sure that they are you know live you know doing the rigor that i expect them to and that's one of the biggest challenges and sometimes as a parent i mean i know what i'm doing with my kids because i teach them but many times parents don't know what's actually being done in the classrooms mm -mm. and so there's this big mystery of you know you 
see grades, you see progress reports, but is it is it rigorous enough? Is it diverse enough? Is it does it go you know um, in as much depth as we want the parents you know as we want the kids to go through? Um, because just because you have a good grade doesn't mean that it's rigorous. Right. You know, you can have a high grade and low rigor. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I think there's a lot of questions swirling around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think parents really get a sense of how much knowledge their kids are acquiring uh, just in general and, you know, feeling a forward momentum in a school year. And I think that a lot of the concerns about curriculum, also a lot of the concerns about quality were all directly related to the challenges that families had navigating crisis remote learning. And I think what any practitioner would say is that having kids on Zoom for an extended period of time is not necessarily a good practice. Uh, We all have attention span challenges. I know that mine is shorter than many other people's and kids uh, need social interaction there are better ways of delivering remote learning than what we saw in the past two years. And I think that all of those challenges, concerns and anxieties all culminated um, with families saying, we need a fresh start. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, One of the factors that was mentioned in the survey was wanting to better address your child's special education needs. So are there better choices than others if you have a child that has special needs? So one of the rules that I have for myself, because I really believe this, is that we never say that we think any one type of school is better than another type of school for all kids. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you will never hear me saying that um, you should always choose your neighborhood public school or that charter schools are always better than private schools or that private schools are always better than district schools, because I really think it what matters is is the school the right environment for your child and is it a good fit for your daughter or son and i think that two parents who live right next door to each other and have the same amount of school choice options the same exact options available to them could equally make excellent choices for their kids and choose different schools because they have determined that one environment is the best fit for their child so to your question What I encourage parents to do, if they have a child with exceptional needs, if they have a child that has an individualized education plan or program, is when they are going and looking at schools, ask specific questions about how that school in the past has addressed the educational needs of a child who has similar needs as your child and ask for examples. You don't just want to get a check in the box answer of whether or not the school accepts students who have IEPs, because in every public sector option, the answer you will get is yes, because that's a legal requirement. But you want to know how they have addressed these situations, what type of classroom the child will be in, what type of uh, instruction they will receive, how the teachers are trained and certified or accredited to teach kids who have exceptional needs um, and how they communicate with families on an ongoing basis to make sure that a child's IEP is being followed or monitored uh, or updated. And so you want to get as specific as you can and get examples. That is really good wisdom because 
I have heard that there are certain types of schools that are not required to um, address special education needs. Um, Private schools, I think. I know public schools have to. But for you to go in and say, how has this been addressed in the past? And that's a perfect way to address it instead of just blanket saying, I'm not going to this type of school because they're not going to be able to help my kid. Right. And so let's just be real for a second. Yes, there are some private schools that do not uh, serve students with special needs. There are also some private schools that are specifically set up to help students with special needs. And in some cases, actually, public sector schools, if they determine that they cannot appropriately serve a child who has uh, exceptional needs, they can do what's called an outplacement, meaning they can choose a private environment for that child and pay for it. The district will pay for a private school for that student because the district has a responsibility to meet state and federal law when it comes to educating kids with um, IEPs, special needs, et cetera. And they determine that the best way to do that is by um, having an outplacement. So it's a mixed bag. Now you will find public sector schools in some places you know, whether it's a district school, charters, et cetera, that will tell you, yes, we serve students with special needs and legally they do. Now, you may find that the quality of education that you get for your child who has those needs might not be as good as at another district managed or charter school. So just because someone follows the law by the letter does not necessarily mean they're adhering to the spirit of the law, which is that children who have special learning needs get a free and appropriate education yeah that's really good has virtual learning in the past couple of years been more of an encouragement or a detriment to the homeschooling movement to the homeschooling movement yeah so what i would say is this everybody needs to know that there is a big difference between homeschooling and online schooling and remote learning and So homeschooling means that you actually unenroll your child from their existing bricks and mortar school or the bricks and mortar school that is now doing remote learning. And you decide that within the barriers of state law or the confines or the structures of state law, you are going to educate your child in the home. And every state has requirements for homeschooling. Sometimes you have to provide notice. Sometimes you have to teach specific subjects. Some states even require you as the parent to have specific academic credentials, uh, bachelor's degree or high school diploma, et cetera. So every state has its own rules. So homeschooling, that process of opting your child out of a bricks and mortar school, educating them in the home, that has grown significantly during the pandemic because a lot of families went through the emergency remote learning and said, we are spending as much time on this emergency remote learning. We don't like the technological platforms we're using. Our kids are not paying attention. We are frustrated. Everybody's frustrated. We can do it ourselves. So they unenrolled their kids and they homeschooled them. So in that case, yes, it has increased the numbers of homeschoolers. Um, Would I say that it inspired families to homeschool? In some ways, yes. Now, A lot of families felt like they were homeschooling last year because of crisis remote learning. And the reality is families innovated to address the challenges they were dealing with by getting kids together in learning pods and creating micro schools. 
that helped those students go through the crisis remote learning. So I think that parents did play a greater role in their kids' education um, in the past two years. Now, when it comes to a totally different aspect of this, and that is full-time online schooling, these are schools that were set up and have been set up for more than a decade that kids can attend tuition-free that are online. They have really perfected the way of delivering a quality education using new technology. Those schools have become more popular among families who've been frustrated with emergency remote learning. But I am concerned that people are going to conflate and confuse emergency remote learning with full-time online schooling and that the um, the result of that will be less support for that option for families. And I'm all for giving families more choices. Yeah. I, I love you got an answer out of that somewhere. <laughs> well, you absolutely did. And and I love that you called it crisis online learning because that's exactly what it was. It was very, very difficult for our family. I, we have three kids. so <laughs> And at some point, David had to go back to his campus to teach. So I was all by myself. And it was it did feel like crisis kind of traumatic. And the yeah. friends that I have that have done online like traditional online learning um it's not that it is not the same mm. thing as what we because we were no, we were experiencing an experiment that had kind and of it gone was awry. a terrible experiment too <laughs> i mean i could go on for another full hour about this topic and it's not just to dump on remote learning because i know everybody has an opinion on it and how it's been over the past year but we tried this because we had to as a country because of the challenge of the coronavirus but what we still have not addressed is the fact that there are families in this country that cannot afford internet access. There are families in this country that do not have technology, computers, pads, et cetera, to be able to access the internet, even if they do have uh, internet access. Some people just have you know, a phone in their household. Uh, you have other families where you have three, four, five children, but one phone. How do yeah. five kids in different grade levels go through remote learning on one phone. It didn't work. They didn't. And so what we need to do is make sure we address all of those other issues, even though hopefully the pandemic will be receding in terms of severity of cases, severity of illnesses, hospitalizations, things like that. Because we need to remember the challenges we faced at the beginning. And we need to get people connected to the internet. If we expect people to be able to learn online, we need to make sure they have access to technology and all of those other supports that are necessary so that education can actually be equitable. Yeah. You know, and <clears throat> I have, you know, my commentary on this is that many times our schools as a whole, um, that they were not already online traditional schools who have been doing this for, like you said, for over a decade. It's not like, you know, online resources and technology is a new this isn't a new thing it's been around for right. quite some time the problem has been is that schools have not innovated in right. their instruction and how they deliver um you know learning to students and so you know the way schools have been many times has been how it was you know back when we were in school um and with a little bit of integration of technology but not much and so when the pandemic hit because none of them were, maybe not, I'm saying none of them, but many schools were not already moving in that direction. It was as if, you know, figure of speech, but that they got caught with their pants down. 
Um, and so schools had to scramble to figure out how are we going to do this. Um, and so that's why I believe that it was, it was in many cases a failure because there was no planning in advance. It, it was a kind of this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. And that led to a lot of challenges. Um, and if, you know, we would have been, you know, kind of thinking ahead of time that would have changed things. Now the challenge now is, is as we're going back into school is how will schools innovate themselves to be prepared for something that may happen again we don't know what's going to happen we don't know if kids are going to have to come back home we hope not but it may happen and if schools are not ready and if not what i've seen as a whole just as the environment in the classrooms is that many times um schools are trying to get back to how things were and not trying yeah. to integrate what we have which can be great because like i said i'm very pro technology and so i use it in my classroom you know highly um but many times schools have just got back back to you know rows and desks and you know copies and worksheets and things like that mm-hmm. but that's going to be a challenge um because i think we have to move forward how do we keep the best of what we have learned from the pandemic and also you know not giving up everything from the past but how do we integrate those two together and i have not seen or heard very many plans because honestly i don't think very many people have a plan because they don't know what to do themselves and so how right. how are they going to be able to help you know, educators and parents and families when they're making this up as long as they go themselves. Yeah. And one of the things I'll say to that is I think you really hit the nail on the head. And that is there are schools out there that have been doing online learning for a long time and they did not come up with best practices in a two week period, which is what a lot of schools had to do at the beginning of the pandemic. What I think more schools, many more schools should have done at the start of the pandemic is reach out to those quality online providers, Mm. partner with them, instead of viewing them as competitors, view them as a complement to what these districts were offering and say, look, our teachers are important to us. Can you help train them in your platform? And can we use your platform uh, until we can get back to normal? And I think what that would have done is that it would have empowered teachers with a more reliable platform to educate kids as opposed to having teachers deal with 20 kids or more on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever is being used while also trying to handle all the technology and at some point trying to get some lessons in there. Um, That would have been a better way of doing it. But I don't want to give schools too hard of a time because you know who else hasn't figured this out? colleges and universities. There are more online colleges and universities out there now than there are um, online K through 12 schools. But a lot of the a lot of the colleges and universities that do not have online classes, they are doing exactly what schools that didn't have an online component um, to their instruction did at the beginning of this pandemic. Kids staring at laptops, looking at a class through what appears to be a telescope. And it just right. <laughs> um, what are the key things that parents should consider when they're researching school choices? The first and most important thing that any parent should consider is this. You are the expert on your child. You know your child better than anybody else on this planet. You know what your child's interests are, talents are, and challenges are. Other people may want to give you advice 
and they may think about judging you for the choices you make. But at the end of the day, you have to make the right call for the person you know your daughter or son to be. That's number one. Number two would be give yourself enough time to look for schools so that you are not rushing by starting in the spring or summer and finding that there are a lot of seats taken up in schools. If families start the school search process now, it not only benefits them because they're more likely to find a school for their child, but it actually helps schools that a lot of parents are interested in understand that there is this demand so they can hire more teachers and expand their seat capacity. So that's the second thing I'd encourage parents to do. The third thing I would encourage parents to do is to listen to the broad advice of other parents who say that their top piece of advice for other families in searching for their kids' schools is to keep the focus on your own child and go visit schools in person and talk to teachers and administrators and ask as many questions as you have. You really want to ask questions that are particular to your child's needs and what you want out of a learning environment. So those are the three things that I would advise uh, a family to do the most. Keep the focus on your child and remember that you're making that decision for your daughter or son and you are the expert. Start this process now and don't wait and make sure you actually go and look at a diverse variety of schools and ask a lot of questions. So if you're having trouble, let's say in the middle of the school year, like it may be in October, I decide this isn't working, I'm gonna need something else. How long should I prepare this process to take? Well, I don't wanna do a plug for my book, but in my book, I have a <laughs> you whole can plug your book. Plug it. section about this because this is such a good question. People will say, well, you say to get prepared for the next school year and it's October and the next school year is not for 11 months. What am I going to do? There's a level of severity you have to consider here. If you're unhappy, and I, I think I made a joke about this, like you might be unhappy with the school lunch. You know, you could like make a call and try to fix that while you look at your other options. But if you're worried your child is getting bullied at school, you need to intervene. You need to get involved. And the school search process is not a replacement for an intervention when your child is in danger or right. when your child is not learning at all. Right. Um, you know, so you do need an intervention before you can find uh, a different option. And you can, in a lot of cases, switch schools mid-year. It's not ideal, but it can be done. And schools do accept students mid-year. And if you are in an emergency situation and you have to do that, by all means, you can accelerate the process. I'm talking more about a situation where a parent feels that it's not a good fit. They're still trying to get a feel if the year isn't going as well as they thought it wasn't going. And, you know, wanting to look around at their options so that they can make the decision at the right time. Mm -hmm. One of the factors that parents stated in the survey was that was important to them is evaluation for preparation for the real world. So they would evaluate the school and say, you know, is this going to help my kid for the real world? So what would parents be looking for that indicates that a school is strong in that area? You know, that's interesting. In that question, uh, we asked families, what would they prioritize in an ideal learning environment for their kids? And that was the top uh, answer, which is they want a school that will prepare their kids for success. And it leads to the question, well, what does that look like? What does a school that prepares a child for success look like? I think the answer to that is in the next few responses. They want their kids to know the basics. They want them to learn math, 
history, English, science, writing, reading, all of those things that you're supposed to get in a well-rounded education. Parents really want their kids to understand and comprehend those things. Parents want their kids to have critical thinking skills and be able to reason their way through challenges and problems. And parents also want their kids to have an education that is interesting and an education that keeps them engaged in learning. And they want to make sure their kids uh, continue to enjoy learning. And I say that, you know, not every day your kid's going to wake up and say, I can't wait for school. I love learning. It's not going to happen every day, but it needs to happen, hopefully, more days than it doesn't. Um, and so whether that's a class that your child is really interested in with a specific focus or an extracurricular activity activity or um, a club or a sport, something like that, that will motivate your child to want to go to school, that is really beneficial as well. Another factor that they indicated is um, having highly trained and qualified teachers. And then you also mentioned critical thinking. So with the crisis in education as a result of the COVID gaps that we've seen and the great resignation where a lot of teachers are deciding they're done, do you think that that has impacted the school's ability to deliver on this? I know it has. It has in a huge way, and we face a huge problem when it comes to recruiting educators, recruiting individuals going to education for a variety of reasons. There are a ton of reasons for this, but the facts remain. The facts are this. We already had a teacher shortage going into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The pandemic made the teacher shortage worse. The vast majority of people who go into the teaching profession are white. And so the teaching profession does not reflect the diversity of our country at all. And we have problems retaining teachers to stay in classrooms. So we need to do a lot of things. We need to diversify the teaching profession. We need to keep people in teaching longer. And we need to figure out ways to attract people to change careers and to go into teaching because someone's content knowledge, what they understand about a subject is often the best predictor of their ability to be a good teacher, as long as they can also handle the pedagogy and the ability to handle a classroom. So we need to get these subject matter experts, these people who understand the subjects they're teaching to go into teaching. What's one of the biggest barriers to all of those things I just talked about? The current process of becoming a teacher. Someone could have a master's degree and have worked in math, worked in banking, even taught a college course, taught Sunday school, but to become a teacher in many states, they have to go back to school and get another bachelor's degree. It is a process that doesn't work for far too many people who would give up a higher paying job for the ability to go into public service and become an educator because the risk reward there of, of having to go back and get another bachelor's degree is just not worth it for so many people. So. It is a bureaucratic, cumbersome process to become a teacher. I'm not saying it should be easy to become a teacher. I think we should have very high standards, but we should uh, create fewer hoops that people have to jump through. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'll just say as a teacher that, you know, there are now for me, it's my wife's always joking that I'm living my best life. Like I'm like, I truly enjoy yes. what I'm doing. And, but I think I'm in the minority right now of teachers um i'm on these groups and teacher groups and just teachers are like i'm done i had a coworker who quit midday at lunch you see he just walked out said i'm, I'm leaving and not coming back 
Um, we have several subjects that just don't have with that at my school don't have teachers right now. We don't have we don't have teachers in some very critical areas. Um, and there's none in sight. Kids that I taught a couple years ago that are taking geometry and pre-calculus and algebra two, they don't have a math teacher. Like literally, they're coming back to me right now saying, "Mr. Bailey, can you give us something to help us learn?" Um, it's it's real. Um, teachers are tired. Um, we're in the crosshairs of all the political issues that are going oh. on right now, which I'm not even going to go into. Uh, but all of those things, and teachers are like, I'm done. I have a degree. I can go do something else and be bad all by myself. And so just as a teacher, I'm saying it's real. Um, and that, you know, if there are not other alternatives being thought of and people are just throwing, you know, education, you know, it's like everyone says education is important. But in regards to what it takes to overhaul the education system or to retain, attain you know, teachers and attract them new, um, it's hard. You know, on my team, I'm I'm 13 years in, but I have teachers, you know, my, with the rest of my math team, one, two, three year teachers. And that's and that's pretty much across the whole my whole campus. You no, know, not very many seasoned veteran teachers. Um, half of all teachers leave the profession within the first five years. This, these are pre-pandemic statistics. Mm-hmm. Now with now with COVID and everything that's happening, it's going to get even worse. And I'm really worried about the state of education and what's going to happen with our kids. You know, I understand that teachers are doing what they feel they need to do, um, which, you know, unfortunately, they feel, many feel they need to leave. But at the end of the day, what's going to happen with our children? What's going to happen with the kids and their futures? And my fear is we're going to lose an entire generation of kids uh, for, for these these past few years is going to impact them tremendously. My kids that are not taking pre-calculus right now and they want to be engineers, what's going to happen to those kids? They don't have a teacher. Who's preparing these kids for their futures? And that's why that's why it's so important for there to be options and for the options to be on display so we can see them. Right. Yeah. Hey, Andrew, you mentioned the need for diversity and yes. in the survey that... Um, you guys conducted black and Hispanic parents were most likely to want to switch schools. Do you think it was because of the, the lack of diversity or was it also other factors? Uh, a variety of different factors. Uh, so interestingly, black parents were far more likely than white parents or Hispanic parents to choose uh, and say that the reason they wanted to switch to different schools because the quality of education, they wanted a higher quality education, uh, far more likely than white or Hispanic families to say that white and Hispanic families were more likely to say that COVID disruptions were their primary motivator. We're not talking about, um, you know, we're not talking about a, a, a huge gulf, uh, here, but it, it's significant enough to, to have me notice it. And what I noticed, uh, in some of the polling done by ed choice, which is another school choice organization, and they do some fantastic polling. They have a, uh, a big new poll out of African-American families. And what they found is that black parents were far more likely to be interested in COVID mitigation protocols in schools than white parents. Yeah. And I found that fascinating by 33 percentage points, black parents supported um, mask requirements, for example, um, 66% did, as opposed to 33% of white parents and 45% of Hispanic or Latino parents. So there's just huge differences uh, in this in the survey that I'm reading from Ed Choice and Morning Consult on um, 
different demographic groups and and their views on COVID. Um, also, after school programs and activities, black families were far more likely to say that those mattered than white and Hispanic families. Uh, and when it came to wanting higher quality remote learning options, black families were 20 percentage points more likely to want uh, those options as opposed to white and Hispanic families. Hispanic families seemed uh, to prioritize uh, communication with a school and um, teachers more in the Ed Choice survey uh, by a marginal percentage than white or black families. So hopefully that was some information that that's interesting. Well, that seems right on track with um, the the black community in general. You know, we have been much more concerned. Um, COVID has impacted black communities. Um, I would say more than the other populations because um, of health reasons and then because a lot of people in the black community are frontline workers and things like that. So that, that seems to make complete sense. Yeah, you know, the data was showing that, you know, uh, early, earlier, about a year ago or so, that, that, that the death rates from COVID were triple the rate of, of, of whites. Um, you know, this was you know, straight from the CDC. And so there are definitely, you know, concerns. And, and, you know, even, you know, in just in just, you know, just out in the culture and society, there's a, you see to see differences as well. Um, and so I can definitely see that, you know, why that would be something that's very, very critical. Yeah, I misstated one da- piece of data here. I just want to correct it. Hispanic families were more likely to prioritize student resources by a marginal percentage over uh the white and and black families that said that same result it wasn't communication anyway just wanted to clear it up because accuracy matters sure what is student resources though specifically that's a good question i'm not sure exactly how it's defined (laughs) in this uh, paul this is somebody else's survey Uh, but i'm most curious about it in our survey uh we saw 10 percentage point higher uh likelihood among black and hispanic or latino families in actually wanting to make a different choice for their kids and um yeah, that was very significant. You know, I've noticed, at least where we are, um, definitely from school districts, school choice is kind of vilified a little bit. And, you know, what what are the reasons for the lack of support? I know why the school districts um, don't support, like, charter schools and things like that, but it seems like school choice is, is kind of a vilified subject. I'm glad you asked that question. And I think that one of the reasons that school choice is vilified is because for a long time, people have defined it so poorly. What we define school choice, the way we define school choice is a purposefully inclusive definition to include traditional public schools managed by districts, public charter schools, public magnet schools, private and faith-based schools, online public schools, and homeschooling. and we define school choice that way not because we seek to be non-controversial although we don't think school choice should be controversial but because that's how families and teachers look at school choice Mm -hmm. they view school choice as a variety of different options that they have or want to have for their kids and it would make no sense to talk about school choice and leave public schools out of the equation There are more public schools out there than there are any other type of school. And families in our survey told us that they are more likely to want to look at district schools within their district or outside of their district, in many cases, than other types of options. Mm -hmm. So we include 
all of these options when we talk about school choice, and we're not referring to specific policies. I think there are specific policies that school districts in particular are not fond of, such as private school choice programs that provide scholarships for families to choose private education for their kids. I support those programs because I support all, all aspects of school choice, but districts view them as competitive policies that could take kids away. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, even within public schools, there are, you know, can be, you know, depending upon the district, there are many different types of choices of the types of schools you can attend within a district. Like, for example, within our district, we have many different options. Uh, we have STEM academies. Um, and this is more of an open concept, airy flow where they're doing a lot of, you know, project-based management type of stuff. Um, there is your traditional, you know, elementary, middle, you know, in high schools. Um, you also have your uh, uh, fine like, arts schools. Like our daughter's at a fine arts academy this year, where in the morning she gets all of her core classes. In the afternoon, she's doing dance, art, music, and theater, and she's thriving. I mean, she right. is, and she's, and this is no, this is free. So, like when we t- when we tell people, you know, that we're at a fine arts academy, like what, really? They're really, really shocked by that. Um, and there and are- it's so important that, that people know about these tuition-free public sector options that do not require families or kids to take tests to get into. And that's why we work with some of the biggest public school districts across the country. Houston Independent School District was just at a school fair that was planned by one of our partner organizations in Texas this morning. And we work with school districts in Florida and Arizona and all across the country because public education and public sector choices need to be considered and be a part of this discussion. And when they are a part of this discussion, parents are better served because they can really see school choice for what it is. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, my, my goal is, you know, as, as I look at, you know, where we are in the choices our kids have, and I look at, you know, some of the other choices of, you know, maybe sometimes in more urban environments and, and things like that, that sometimes I'm thinking, man, I wish this was available to all right. kids in all districts um, versus just, you know, one model, as you said earlier, one model doesn't fit every single child. And right. How many kids are we fall, are falling through the cracks because they don't have options in the environment they're in because of no choice, no fault of their own, are forced into these environments where they have to learn this particular way and they may not be thriving. And so I hope that, you know, as... I look at it as the horizon of what's you know of education could be great if we really expand and look at what is out there and just say that you know this whole if it ain't broke don't fix the mentality what else is available and how can we innovate funding how can we innovate resources how can we innovate support so that um, teachers are thriving and and so that students are thriving as well. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity. This can really be a great time. It seems it is a challenging time, but a lot of good things could come out of it if we're looking at it through the right perspective. And I hope that you know across the board that you know teachers and schools and parents and families and children are getting the most of what could be and not just getting stuck on how things have been in the past. Right, and I totally agree with you. And what you said matters because this is not about, in my opinion, good schools or bad schools. It's not about failing schools and A-rated schools. It's not about rankings and grades and ratings. It's not about a situation where you would never want to choose a different school for your child because you live in a district that has great schools. 
Greatness is determined by whether or not your child is thriving in that school. And it might be a highly rated school, but if your child isn't succeeding, isn't happy, isn't learning enough, you as a parent want the options, David, that you just talked about, that you have exercised for your family. And that's what I want for every parent across the country. A vast variety of choices, a broad portfolio of options, you know, that, that are not um, restricted based on how much a family earns or where they live or what language they speak. I think we can do that in this country and we shouldn't look at it as either or. We can either have strong public education or have school choice, or we can either have, um, you know, schools that are successful in one neighborhood or allow kids to go to public schools in different districts. We can fund all of these options just like a community funds a variety of different parks and libraries for parents to access for their kids. Well, I think that that is a fantastic way to end the show. We are out of time. As usual, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And happy school choice week again. Happy school choice week. Have a great next week. <laughs> Thank you very much. You I know too. I know you're going to be busy. <laughs> yes. Thank you. For additional resources and information, check out School Dazed episode, the one about school choice. And we're going to call that part one. We didn't know it was right. part one at the time <laughs> where Andrew was our guest. And uh, he went into detail about the different school choice options that was with our first season. So Noggin Educational Foundation is the premier sponsor of School Days. So we always want to let you guys know what's happening with Noggin. We're currently taking applications for two of our programs. Noggin offers 12 hours of free private tutoring to students through our educational coaching program. Um, parents receive support in securing services and accommodations for their kids' needs at school for learning disabilities or special needs. With the closure of schools and distance learning, the education gap for low-income students has widened and the one-on-one -on -one intervention we provide is vital. See our website, nogginfoundation.org or email me at Donita, that's D-O-N-E-D-A, at nogginfoundation.org for more details. And as always, you can head to our website, schooldaysshow.com for more information about all that we're doing and for the resources mentioned here on School Days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Audible, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, we we always want to end the show by saying that David and I are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the wisdom and strength that we need to raise our kids into flourishing adults. And if you'd like to know more about that, please feel free to email us at info at schooldazedshow.com. Have a great week and stay safe. School Dazed is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Days is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. Please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.